um, at Shadow Mountain Community Church. That's where we met, and we've been great friends ever since. And so Robert, my buddy, is a girl dad as well. He has three girls. Him and his wife, Ashley, have three daughters, amazing family. Robert is the Connections Pastor at Rise City Church in Lakeside. Would you give a big welcome to my friend, Pastor Robert Pedroza. Where you at, buddy? There you are. God bless you, man. Love you. Love you, too. Appreciate you. All right. Well, New Hope, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor any chance I get to be even a small part of what God is doing in and through New Hope. And I hope you know that God is moving in some powerful ways through New Hope. And can I tell you how pumped I am about this vision that I believe that God has given your pastor, Rick, that I believe will continue to maybe even become, here's a big statement, the most important year of your entire life. And I know that's a crazy statement. That's a big statement. That's a bold statement. But here's why I would say that. Because I know that the only life change that lasts is life change that happens within the presence of Almighty God. Listen, I was 145 pounds when I was 17 years old. And I also became a Christian when I was 17 years old. I don't know if you can tell, but uh, thanks to your donut holes out there, I am no longer 145 pounds. But listen, I am still growing as a Christian because the only life change that lasts is life change that happens because you got into the presence of God. And when you pick this book up, the Bible says that he and his word are one. And so when you open this book and you read the words that are on it, not only will you gain information about who God is and the way he calls you to live, but I believe that you will experience transformation in your life. Because when you spend time in this book, you are actually spending time with Almighty God. And when you do that, you are investing your life in a way that will have transformative power, not just for you, but for your kids. And for your kids' kids. And so, y'all, you are making a generational investment into your lives and into the lives of those that would come after you as well. And so listen, if you are at this point where maybe you're starting to get tired of reading every day or maybe distracted because there's lots of stuff happening in life, it's getting busy, it's getting crazy out there, can I tell you, do not stop. Keep making the investment every day. Maybe you haven't gotten on board yet and you've kind of heard about this vision and you're kind of like, man, it's been real exciting for my friend Joe over there or this person over there. Listen, now is the time for you. If you want to make a generational investment in your life, Pick up this book and start to see how God will speak to you through it, all right? All right. Well, Johanna did an awesome job last week covering the book of Ruth. You all enjoy that? All right. Woo. And the week before that, Pastor Rick covered the book of Judges. Now, the reason why I mentioned the last two weeks is because the book that we're going to look at today... Samuel actually picks up where Judges historically leaves off. The story of Ruth is actually a story that occurs within the historical context of the book of Judges. But today we're going to be going off of where Judges ends and we're going to picking up in this book of Samuel. Samuel, in fact, was the last and final judge of Israel. And so as we jump in, we're going to start, as you have in weeks previous, by looking at the background and historical context of the book of Samuel. Now first, the book of Samuel was written by, can you guess it? Samuel, very good. Samuel, you guys are listening, you guys are on it. I love this today. So, at least up until his death, that is recorded in 1 Samuel 25. After that, we think that the most likely authors are the authors that are also prophets, Nathan and Gad. 
And if anyone ever asks you, and you get put in a position where someone says, hey, who are the authors of the book of Samuel, or who wrote the book of Samuel, if you ever want to feel like a Bible scholar, here's what you should do, okay? I'm going to teach you a trick. Open your Bible to 1 Chronicles 29, 29, and read them this verse. It says there, as for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, that's what the book of Samuel is covering. It says this, they are written in the records of Saul the, or Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer. So if you ever want to feel like a Bible scholar, just uh, open to 1 Chronicles 29 and 29, and everyone will be very impressed with you, okay? Well, let's talk about what Samuel's name means as well, because this has some significance. Samuel's name literally means God has heard. And here's why this is significant, because the book of Samuel doesn't actually start with a story of Samuel. As a matter of fact, it starts with a story about a guy named Elkanah, which kind of sounds a little bit like Alka-Seltzer, but, you know, that's beside the fact. Elkanah also had two wives. Somebody say it. Too many. Someone said yes. Someone was like, yes, two wives. You're in so much trouble, I don't even know. But uh, I'm just joking. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He had too many wives. And if you wouldn't have guessed this already, his two wives, their names are Peninnah and Hannah, they are literally not getting along. Who would have thought that that would happen, right? Fuel to the fire, Hannah is actually barren, meaning that she cannot have children, and Peninnah is rubbing her face in it. And so Hannah, in her desperation, starts to cry out to God, and God hears her, and she ends up giving birth to Samuel, and she names him God Has Heard. Isn't that beautiful? But why this is significant is because it also mirrors what is happening in the environment of Israel. Because Israel is experiencing its own barrenness at this moment. Israel is not barren of child, they're barren of hope. And Pastor Rick did a good job of showing you in the book of Judges how it really was a story of failure after failure after failure. And they get to this point and the very last sentence of the book of Judges really describes it well. And it's Judges 21, 25. And it tells us, in those days, Israel had no king. Which explains well the tension that is happening. Because at this point in the book of Judges, they're ruled by who? Judges. And so now they're starting to recognize they have no king. What they're starting to get to the point of is they're understanding that the judges, the word judge means deliverer, isn't bringing them the deliverance that they were hoping for. And so they recognize we need to up the ante. Israel had no king. And it goes on and says, so everyone did as they saw fit. In this broken failure after failure environment, it just gets to this point where it's just everybody is doing however they see fit. They're living life whatever they think is right or true. Sound familiar with our environment today and our culture in the world? I mean, the book of Samuel, and I want to set the stage for you today, is God's answer to Israel's emptiness, and I would go even as far as this. It is also the answer to the world's brokenness. And so let's jump in. We're going to look at some key events, but to set the stage for you, um, what is happening in the book of Samuel is in the book of Judges, let's go back a little bit, they are tribes led by judges. But now we are transitioning to a point in the book of Samuel where Israel is about to turn into a unified kingdom that's going to be led by a king. And the very first main character that shows up that leads us towards this transition is, of course, Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Samuel is born. And this is an answer to Hannah's prayer. And she, in response to God's faithfulness, commits Samuel to the Lord by placing him under the supervision, care, and even instruction 
of the priest, his name is Eli. And then in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, there is this beautiful song or prayer that Hannah sings or prays that if we didn't know, we might just skim over. We might just read quickly over, but you would miss out on so much richness that is found in Hannah's prayer because what it does is it actually mirrors what the rest of the book of Samuel is going to be about. And this prayer or this song has three main themes. You ready for them? All right, the first one is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. We see this in Peninnah and Hannah's dynamic, right? Peninnah's rubbing Hannah's face and the fact that she can't have kids. And Hannah is humbly coming before God and laying on her face and begging God for his mercy in that. We're going to see that as well in the contrast that you're going to see between Israel's first two kings, which names are Saul and David. The second theme in Hannah's song is this. Even if people mess it up, somebody say, and they do, Right, they do, right, they do. Even if people mess it up, God will make a way. Even when people mess it up, God will make a way. Isn't that good news even right now? That even when that relationship failed you, even when that leader messed up, even when your job didn't pan out, even when whatever it is, even when people mess it up, and they do, God makes a way. And then the third theme that we find in Hannah's song is this. There is a perfect king coming. Listen, we're going to find out that the kings that they choose and they place in power over them, they are going to fail. But how many of you know that there is a perfect king coming? That Jesus is going to come onto the picture and he's never going to fail. And so remember those three themes because you're going to see them over and over and over again as you look in the book of Samuel. Now, the next key event is kind of ironic because uh, we just heard that the last main theme of Hannah's song was this. There's a perfect king coming. And then in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, the Israelites asked for a, anyone guess? A king, right? Sounds good, right? Then why is Samuel? Samuel's now at the point of power. He's a judge. He's a prophet. He's called the man of God over and over and throughout the book of Samuel. He's really ticked about this. He's not happy about it, which... When you ask about it, you're kind of like, hey, well, she said there's a perfect king coming. Now they're asking for a king. What's the problem? Well, here's a problem. The Israelites are asking for a human king. And Samuel's response is, you should be underneath God's kingship and be happy about it. Because God's kingship is perfect. He's your protector. He's your provider. He will put you in an environment and in a place where you will flourish. And yet you want a human king? Which then maybe your next question, which would be appropriate if this is it, is why in the world would they want a human king if they've got God as their king? And here's why. Because they start looking at all the nations around them and they see that they have kings. How many of you know that comparison is a trap? And it's a lie. It'll have you looking around yourself at what they have, who they're with, where they're going, and you'll want it too, even if it's not God's best for you. It is a trap, it is a lie, and it will steal God's best from you. I mean, after all, there's a promise, and Hannah reflects on it, of a perfect king that is coming. He's a Messiah, and yet Israel chooses an imperfect king. Why? Because they would rather trust in copying what they see in their proximity than they would on the promise of the living God. There are times, I don't know if you know this, where your compliance with culture will come in direct conflict with your calling from God. 
I'm going to say it again. There are moments when your need to fit in and have what they have, be where they're at, be with who they're with, will come in direct conflict with the calling that God has on your life, with the calling that God has the best for you in your life. And you'll miss out on it because comparison is a trap. And yet we walk around with these tiny computers in our pockets that call us all the time and let us know what she's up to or what he's doing and the accomplishments that they have done, and it makes us want them. Comparison is a trap, and it will steal from you what God has for you. As a matter of fact, it is foolishness to grab what is next to you and call it good when it means that you will forfeit what is above you. Listen, God says that his ways are better than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so it is foolishness to to settle for this low level where the rest of humanity is at when you have an upward call in the name of Christ Jesus, your Lord, okay? And so let's not let comparison continue to steal from us. Don't let uh, us get to the point where we forfeit those promises and purposes of God just so we can experience human participation with everybody else. Let's continue to look to Jesus Christ. Well, well, when Samuel gets to the point where he's upset about the Israelites asking for an earthly king, he goes to God and he's like, can you believe these guys? Like, they want an earthly king, they should be happy with you. What's interesting is that God does not argue with him, right? He doesn't tell him that he's wrong or anything like that, but he does do something very interesting. If you look with me in the Bible, this is how he responds. He says, listen to them and give them a king. Listen to them and give them a king. And the reason why I point this out, this is not God's agreement with the Israelites. This is not uh, God's correction of Samuel's position. This is his graciousness in a moment. And the reason why this is important is because God's permission does not always mean it was God's promise. God's permission does not always mean that it was God's promise. I think that we have trained ourselves to overvalue open doors. As a matter of fact, you will experience Doors that are open that will lead you to destruction, that will lead you to debt, that will lead you to divorce, lead you to distraction. There's a whole lot of open doors that don't necessarily mean that it was God's promise. And as a matter of fact, it can become really problematic, and I've done this in my life. Maybe you've done it in yours. Maybe I'm not the only idiot up here, but you know, (laughs) maybe I am. I don't know. But either way, here's what I've done in my own life is I have walked through what I thought was an open door that solidified and substantiated the promise of God in my life, and when it was disappointment on the other side of it, you know what I did? I blamed God for it. If we start to misunderstand the graciousness of God and we rename it as the agreement of God or God's best for us, then we can actually blame God on the other side of our disappointment after we walk through a door that we thought maybe was God's promise, but it was just God's permission. God's permission does not always mean it was God's promise. So don't make the mistake of renaming God's graciousness in a moment as God's incompetence in the long run. How many of us have gotten to the point where we said, what happened to the good God after we walked through and all of a sudden things didn't work out how we thought they should? But really, it was God just saying, I'll let you go, but don't think that this is my gift. This is my graciousness in a moment. It's not God's promise in it. And so Saul's disobedience has a consequence. It actually gets to a point where he actually uh, comes unglued. (laughs) Go figure. And he starts to exhibit a cycle of disobedience. And this all comes to a head in 1 Samuel 15. When Saul attempts to justify his disobedience to Samuel, here's what happens. Saul is uh, making a bad decision. 
Samuel comes up and he confronts him on it. And, and, and Saul's response is, but look at all the things I've sacrificed to God. His response is, is, look at all this treasure that I've set aside to give to God. And then Samuel's response, maybe you've heard it before, is this well-known statement that you might have heard before in 1 Samuel 15, 22, where he says this. He says, obedience is better than sacrifice. And here's what Samuel is really saying. This is the point that he's making. He's saying, oh, Saul, just because you offered some burnt offerings, just because you reserved some treasure for God, let me bring this home real quick, just because you tithe, just because you give God your Sundays, just because you quit cussing, just because you deleted that app, just because you got out of that bad relationship, whatever it is, obedience is better than sacrifice. So don't think that your sacrifice somehow balances the scales that your disobedience already made lopsided. As a matter of fact, we can misunderstand what obedience really is. Because we can think to ourselves that this book is a rule book. And what obedience looks like is we figure out what God's rules are and we blindly obey them. That's not the, the, the point of obedience. You know what obedience really is according to God's word? He says, I have a plan for your life. I've created it a certain way and sin has corrupted it, but I'm gonna let you know the secret or the mystery about a life more abundant, a life more full, a life that would flourish a life that would give you the blessing and the goodness that you are longing for, all you gotta do is obey my word and live the way that I've called you to live. You're gonna be living differently from everybody else because everybody else has been damaged and broken and confused and deceived by sin, but I'm gonna share with you the truth and who the truth or who the sun sets free is free indeed and the truth will set you free that is resting in the presence of almighty God. And so obedience is really about coming into alignment with agreement with what God says is real and trusting that his word is right and saying I'm going to live my life according to that. It's not about some rights and wrongs, some do's and don'ts. It's about obedience to God because you trust him most. That's what obedience is. And Saul didn't understand that. And so his disobedience has a cycle that just keeps on going over and over and over again. And eventually in 1 Samuel 16, this all elevates to this place where God rejects him as king. And instead God tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem, sound familiar, and go anoint someone better. He says, anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And here's where it kind of takes a surprising turn because up to this point, we kind of think that Samuel is a little bit like Jesus 2.0, like this guy is legit, right? But can I tell you that even Samuel made some mistakes? Even Samuel didn't have the full picture because when he gets there and he gets to the sons of Jesse, the first son that he sees is the son Eliab. And Eliab is a stud, kind of looks like me, right? Like he's, he's real tall, real handsome, just kind of kingly air about him, right? So <laughs> that's not me. But, you know, so he looks at Eliab and he thinks right away, that's got to be him. Really what he's saying is, that guy looks just like Saul. Because even though we can be failed by people in their actions, we can still be obsessed with them and the portrayal that we've developed in our own brain about who people are. And he gets to this point where he says, that's gotta be him. Saul was described as a head and shoulder over everyone else in Israel. And here comes Eliab, and the first thing he notices about him, and the Bible points it out, is he's tall. There's something kingly about him. And yet God responds in this unique way. He tells him, and he says, listen, you judge the outward appearance, but I see the heart. There's something deeper to this. 
Samuel. You're missing the point because you're too busy looking at the surface. Man, some of us are too superficial that we're missing the heart. And so, so Jesse continues to bring his sons out over and over again, right? Keeps bringing them out. Abinadab comes next. And, and pretty soon, Jesse's out of sons. And Samuel's like, you sure you don't have anyone else? And he's like, well, I do have someone else. But listen, he's the lowest on my priority list. He's the youngest. He's the smallest. He's, you know, I mean, in fact, I've got him out tending sheep out in the pasture. And Samuel says, bring him to me. And it's this, the youngest, the smallest, most overlooked of Jesse's sons. And I point that out because it's possible that somebody here today or even watching online right now has been overlooked your entire life. Maybe that's the overarching story of your entire life is that you have been overlooked. You have felt too small. You have felt too inexperienced, too unequipped to ever be used by God. And if that's you today, then let me point you to the story of this overlooked young, small, little shepherd boy named David that would become the most consequential king in all of Israel's history. And he's anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And David's anointing finds some circumstantial validation when the Israelites and the Philistines are in a little bit of a standstill in the Valley of Elah. How many of you know this story, right? What's happening is the Philistines are standing on one side, the Israelites on the other side, and the Philistines have got this champion, you know? They've got their their, their own LeBron James or whatever, you know? I don't know. You have to say it like that, LeBron James. Okay, but they've got their champion, and this champion keeps on marching out, and he starts to challenge the Israelites. And he says, why don't you send out your champion and we'll fight mano y mano and decide who wins this battle. Anyone know who that champion was? Goliath. And Goliath was a giant, about my height, right? He was a giant. He was, he was a warrior from a young age. And they're in a standstill because guess what? Eliab, the tall, strong, kingly looking guy, son of Jesse, is shaking on the sideline. And even Saul, who's head and shoulders above everybody else, is hiding in his tent. But it's little overlooked David who shows up to deliver lunch. He's not even part of the military. He just shows up to deliver lunch and he sees what is happening and he has so much faith in his God that he says, my God is bigger than that giant. My God is greater than everything that you can throw at us, O Philistine army. My God is bigger and stronger and I trust him more than anything else. And so you know the story. He goes and he kills Goliath, chops off his head, becomes an instantaneous national hero. Pretty amazing, right? Unless you're Saul. As a matter of fact, Saul's pretty ticked about this. And his anger turns into fear. His fear turns into resentment to the point where he then tries to kill David a number of times. And David has to run and hide in the wilderness. And he stays there, humbly, with a lot of drama in between, but we're not going to cover all that. Read your Bible, you'll find out. Until he dies, Saul, in 1 Samuel 31. Now Saul's death has a lot to teach us. Because Saul dies when he is critically wounded by a Philistine archer after the Philistine army had already killed his three sons. And so he's critically injured, and he sees the Philistine army coming at him, And instead of getting captured alive by the Philistines, he falls on his own sword and he kills himself. This is a character trait that you see in Saul over and over and over again. He has control issues. He takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't trust God. And that is such a piece of his rebellion. And I point that out because it's possible that someone here has that same character trait. 
And maybe today is not a day of guilt and shame because of it, but maybe today is a day of surrender so you can be freed from it. Because some of us would rather take our own life into our hands over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying you will find freedom, you will find success, you will find goodness, you will find blessing when you're willing to place your life into my hands and let me be the Lord and King over your life and let me tell you where to go and what to do. That was Saul's downfall. But we don't see that in David. David is humble. He places his life in God's hands and this gives him the power and authority to go kill a Philistine giant. It gives him the resilience to, to wait on God even though the judge prophet Samuel anointed him king years ago. And it gives him the restraint to not have to go and retaliate against Saul even though he had a lot of opportunities to do so. And this prepares David for what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 2 which is David is finally made king. Only he's anointed king over Judah. And someone's like, Judah? I thought we were talking about Israel. Well, what happened was, is that the kingdom gets divided in half. Because there's people from the house of Saul that actually commandeer the throne of Israel, but there's a whole bunch of tribes that are loyal to David and recognize him as king. And so there's a civil war that breaks out between the house of Saul and the house of David. And this all gets resolved in 2 Samuel chapter 5, when David conquers Jerusalem, becomes king over all of Israel, and he sets up Jerusalem not only as the political capital, but also as the spiritual capital and he does this by bringing the ark of the covenant into the city and then he tells God and says I want to build you a house to which God is like that is so nice <laughs> but no thank you as a matter of fact I'm going to build you a house a dynasty and he makes this amazing promise to David that we see in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 and it's described well in the verse um, in verse 16 of chapter 7 it says your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now I know that some of y'all are cheaters. So you've read ahead and you know the rest of the story and you're like, wait a second. I know about what happens with David and how he ends up becoming a dirty, rotten sinner. <laughs> and I know that his sin has a consequence and that consequence was that his kingdom crumbles and his family gets destroyed and his throne gets passed around so I know it's coming in chapter 12, but does that mean that here in chapter 7 that God was lying? If you look at the outward appearance, like Samuel made the mistake of doing, then you might make the mistake of missing the inward heart. Because God's promise is so much deeper than the current circumstance. And that's so important because so often we will hear a promise from God and we'll think that it's a solution to our current problem. And God is like, no, 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 my thoughts are deeper, are higher, are better than yours. And I know a deeper thing that you actually need. And so while you're saying, I need to get my rent paid, God, God is like, no, I'm storing up treasure for you in heaven. There's a deeper thing to God's promise. And so here, God's promise is not a setup for David and his direct family. God's promise here is a setup for the savior of the entire world. What God is promising is even bigger than what David's perspective might allow him to see. God's promises 
to David mean this, that the Messiah, that the perfect king that Hannah prayed about in the very beginning of the book of Samuel will come from the house of David. And in this way, the house of David will be established forever. His throne will be before him forevermore because he's going to make a way through the house of David. Oh, David goes from being an overlooked, small town, little shepherd boy to being the very foundation to which Jesus, the Savior of the world, would come. Absolutely incredible, right? And I tell you this because how many of you know that God displays his perfect, perfect, unchanging love in us imperfect people? Listen, if you are broken, if you feel like the jar of clay that you really are right now, you need to know this. Jesus is the light of the world and he turns around and he calls you the light of the world because he places his hope and healing in his name, in your life, to save the world and bring them to a rescue that they're dying for. God is using us, even though broken, even though flawed, to do amazing things. This is an overwhelming mystery about the good news that we call the gospel. Even if we mess it up, and David messes it up, bad, very bad. 2 Samuel 11, David is standing on a rooftop when the rest of his army is out fighting a war, and he should probably be with them. He looks over and he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on a roof, and David's a creep, all right? <laughs> He's creeping, all right? He's super creeping, all right? And he flexes his kingship, and he says, bring her to me. And he does, um, how can we say this in a PG way? Marital things with her, even though she's already married to one of his prized soldiers, Uriah. And so to cover up this sin, he goes through a bunch of schemes that eventually end in the assassination of Uriah. Scandalous. And so there's this prophet Nathan that comes up and confronts David, and David is quick to repent, which is a great marker of his humility, but it does not erase his terrible sin. And so he seeks God's forgiveness, and God does forgive him, but he lets him know and say, there is gonna be consequences. First of all, the son that Bathsheba is pregnant with because of your sin is going to die. But then it's going to get worse. As a matter of fact, all of David's kids would end up abusing and killing one another in extremely X-rated fashion. I know that Pastor Rick mentioned that the book of Judges was very R-rated. Well, listen, the book of Samuel is very X-rated. If you want some X-rated material, go to first, or 2 Samuel 13. And someone's flipping real fast over there. You know, I mean, I mean that's okay, that's okay. Just keep reading all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 20, and you'll get the full picture of how David's family and kingdom crumbles. Because here's the truth. Sin will always take from you more than you were willing to give. It will always deceive you by letting you know it's just, it's just a flirty text. It doesn't mean anything. It's just one more. I mean, it's probably not going to be a big deal and you will justify it in your brain, but let me tell you, sin has this way of convincing you that it's not going to cost a lot, and it takes from you everything. Sin has this way of fooling you, and then ending up sending you on a broken road further than you ever wanted to travel. That's the story, the tragic story of David. If we were to catalog the book of Samuel into a bookstore today, we would have to find the tragedy section. But this doesn't take away from the fact that these were ordinary men in the book of Samuel that God used in extraordinary ways. Ordinary men 
ordinary people with extraordinary stories. And so the first one that I want to look at today is, of course, Samuel. Samuel goes from being an answered prayer to an anointing prophet. What do I mean by that? Well, Samuel should have never been born. He didn't come from promising pedigree, and he was a product of his mother's mourning. And in her mourning, actually, get this, Hannah is crying out so desperately that the priest Eli hears her, and he thinks that she's drunk. You ever been there? You ever been crying out so desperately to God that you got embarrassing about it? Have you ever wanted a healing that you didn't think was possible so badly or a breakthrough that no one said was going to happen or some kind of movement that you've been longing for in your bones that you cry out so much that you become a puddle on the ground? Anybody there now? Here's what I want to say to you. Look at what God did for Hannah. Look at what God did for Hannah. It's very simple. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, the very end of verse 19, it says this. The Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. And so can I tell you to keep praying. Keep trusting in God. Keep putting all your faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Lord sees you. The Lord remembers you. When you're crying, the Bible says that he collects your tears in a bottle. God sees you. When you're lonely, the Bible says that he puts the lonely into families. God remembers you. Keep crying out to God. It's worth it. So how does Samuel go from being an answered prayer to an anointing prophet? One thing. Yes, Lord? <laughs> but that was fun. How did Samuel go from being an answer to prayer for Hannah to an anointing prophet? One thing. God called. And when God called, Samuel answered. That's the story of Samuel. God called, and when God called, Samuel answered. The reason why Samuel is an ordinary person with an extraordinary story is because when God called him, he said yes. And I gotta tell you, there's some people in this room or watching online right now that God is calling, and your extraordinary story is on the other side of your yes. And there's some of us that are withholding that yes because we want to keep the control because if we say yes, it means surrender. And surrender is terrifying because now we can't predict what's around the corner in our lives. We can't understand what might be coming. We've got to just trust and obey in Almighty God. But God has a perspective that's different than mine and he doesn't understand my problems and my, my, my perspectives and my issues that I have right here and now. And so if I surrender to God, it's a whole different story. But some of us need to surrender to God if we want to have the extraordinary story that he has for us. Do you know that you have a calling on your life? Do you know that you have a calling on your life from God? I'll prove it to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying Jesus is calling you to live a life that is distinct, different from the way of the rest of the world. Why? Because he has made a way for you to be restored back into the relationship you're created for with God Almighty so that you can start to live the life you're created to live and be the person you were created to be, which is a child of God, walking with him, talking with him, living according to him, being obedient to him. Man, God is moving in some powerful ways. There are balls falling from the sky right now. I don't know if you see this. 
somebody was like, God is saying, you need to say yes to me right now, or I'm going to drop this on your head right now. Here's my exhortation to you. Do not sacrifice ordinary, I'm sorry, do not sacrifice extraordinary on the altar of the predictable ordinary. Do not sacrifice your extraordinary on the altar of the predictable ordinary. But, but we got two more people to get through. So, so let's look at Saul. Now, when you hear Saul's story, you can probably think to yourself, man, this guy went from extraordinary to ordinary, and you wouldn't be all that wrong. But I don't want you to miss that still Saul came from a very ordinary place. As a matter of fact, when Samuel is rebuking Saul, um, this is what he says in 1 Samuel 15, 17. He says, although you were once small in your own eyes, meaning, Saul, you had a humility at one point, but you lost it real quick. He says, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? And then he says this. He says, the Lord. Some of, all, some of us need to get real about this. Like, it was not you that did it. It was the Lord who did it. Right? It was not you who got it. It was the Lord who gave it to you. Okay? And so he reminds Saul here, and he says, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Sadly, though, you might know the story. Saul's extraordinary story is extraordinary for all the wrong reasons. Yes, it's extraordinary how quickly God elevated him to the place where he became Israel's first king. But it's equally extraordinary how quickly Saul got so arrogant and so rebellious. And that's why Saul's story is from becoming the first king to becoming the rejected king. Saul is a type of extraordinary that we never want to be like. Simply put, he let it go to his head. He got machismo, okay? Y'all know what machismo is? He let it go to his head. Listen, do not ever take what God did and make it your arrogance. It is a recipe for disaster, and you see that in the life of Saul. And that's why the Bible is so clear. God's strength is perfected in your weakness. Here's what I would say. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, the perfect king that Hannah talked about, did not flex his kingship to lord over other people, but instead the Bible says that he humbled himself and he became like a human and he got to the lowest place of humanity. Why? So he could lift it up. You want to know what real strength looks like? It doesn't mean walking on people. Real strength looks like picking people up. That's what real strength is. Saul missed that. And because of that, he's an extraordinary story of who we never want to be. But let's close with this. And this is our, our last extraordinary story from an ordinary man. And of course, this is David. David went from being overlooked to becoming the king whose kingdom would be established forever. David is called a man after God's own heart. Which I know some of y'all just heard about him in Bathsheba, and you're like, he's a what? <laughs> he's a man after whose? Because even in our mistakes, God's mercy is more. Even in our failures, God's faithfulness still holds water. Even when we screw it up, and we do, God makes a way. And there's three reasons why David has a heart that is after God's that I want us to close with today. Number one, David's faith is in God, not in David. David's faith is in God, not in David. At some point in Saul's life, Saul's faith became more placed in Saul than it did God. But this is not true of David. And this gave David the courage again to face Goliath, to wait on the Lord, to, to hold restraint when he could have attacked Saul and defended himself. 
And here's why I say that, because if you want to live an extraordinary story, then you need to live according to a, an extraordinary God. A whole bunch of us are becoming the lid to our own lives because we are trusting in our own ability, our own experience, our own education, our own charisma, our own whatever it is. And let me tell you, whatever you have going for you is the least of what God has available for you. And so, so many of us are becoming the lid on our own lives because we aren't willing to surrender our lives to a mighty, extraordinary God. And because of it, we're missing out on the extraordinary story that God has for you. If you want to live an extraordinary story, you have to live according to your belief in an extraordinary God. And if you do this, then you will see what Jesus challenges us toward in John 14, 12, where he says this. He says, truly I tell you, whoever believes in me has loyalty to me, has fidelity in me. Whoever does will do the works that I have been doing. This is Jesus talking, y'all. The miracles, the movements. The, the, the breakthroughs, all the different things. You can live a life like that, but then he goes even crazier. Jesus, you're nutty on this one. He goes this, he goes, and they will do even greater things than these, is what he says. Let me say it another way. God's best comes from his promises, not your preferences. God's best comes from his promises, not your preferences. Oh, you may prefer how educated you are. You may prefer your own ability and experience, but God's best will not come from that. They come from his promises, not your preferences, not your priorities, not, not your, your power, not any of those things, not your personality. It comes from God's power. It comes from his promises and what he has declared to be true even before the foundations of the world. And so if you want to live a life like this, what Jesus would call a life more abundant or a life more full, then that can only come from living according to a belief in an extraordinary God. Number two, the second reason why David was a man after God's own heart, David's humility. David showed himself to be humble over and over and over again. David did not elevate himself, but he humbly hid in the desert, waiting on God's timing. David repented quickly and admitted when he was wrong, and even at the end of his life, he uses his last words to praise and worship Jesus, to worship God, not save face. And that's what Saul did. Saul was constantly trying to save face. How many of us in this room are trying to save face today? And that will always keep us from living God's best. And the reason why David's humility was so powerful was this simple statement that we've heard over and over and over again. It doesn't need a lot of commentary. We just need to actually believe it. And it's this simple thing. God exalts the humble but opposes the proud. If we can understand this simple and direct truth, it will change the trajectory of our lives because we will place our lives in surrender to Jesus and trust him to do the elevating. We won't be trying to climb up ladders. We won't be trying to step on top of people. We won't try to intimidate other people around us to try to get what we want. We will trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding. If we understand this simple truth. And the last thing I wanna close with this, David trusts God outside of David's circumstances. At the end of David's life, his life is falling apart, and the promise is really hard to see. You ever been there? The promise gets real difficult to see because the circumstances aren't going your way. And so you've heard the truth. You've heard guys like me up here yelling at you about the truth, talking about this book called the Bible, 
But when your circumstances start to give some difficulty in perceiving that truth, the promises can get hard to see. But David trusts God outside of David's circumstances. Here's what he teaches us to do. He teaches us to, to proclaim the light of the world even if the sky is dark. That even when death is knocking at your door, say, I've got a Jesus who rose from the grave and conquered the thing of death. To say, even when I'm at the end of my existence, to still say, I've got an everlasting king who promises me everlasting life. How can David point us to this? Because David knows what you can know today, that God's mercy is greater than your mistakes. God's mercy is greater than your mistakes. Even when people mess it up, and they do, Jesus makes a way. As a matter of fact, this is the overarching story and the conclusion of the book of Samuel. It's also the story of God. It's the story of your life as well, that you had a perfect king that came down and didn't flex his kingship to lord over you, to make you serve him, to make you fulfill everything that he wanted, but rather he decided to humble himself even to death and death on a cross to take the punishment that you deserved and I deserved so that he can make a way where there seemed to be no way. So we can be reconciled back into the relationship that we were created for. So we can become the people that we were created to be and live the life that you were created to live. This is the good news of the gospel. Is that there is a perfect king who has made things right again. But it's going to take surrender. It's going to take you saying, I will trust in Jesus before I trust in myself. That I'm not going to become Saul that's head and shoulders over everybody else and flexing my kingship everywhere. I'm not gonna become David in his sin because even there, he failed us. But I'm gonna trust in Jesus, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of my faith, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who got down low to lift me up. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Not because we are worshipers, but because you're worthy of it. And so God, we don't love you just because we are loving people. We love you because you first loved us. So Jesus, we thank you so much today for being the initiator, for being the one who came to us, who brought us a deliverer, a perfect king. His name is Jesus. And God, if there's anyone in this room or watching online that needs to surrender to him for the first time, or maybe surrender to him for the millionth time, right here, right now, God, I ask that you would speak in their ears, that you would take them by the hand, and that you would lead them in your way. Jesus, we ask that you would make all things new again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. What the heck? Love you, brother. Good job, man.